Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest is a lawyer, writer, and former foreign policy advisor in the administration of the Canadian Prime Minister. He has held residencies at Yaddo and the McDowell and has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and many other publications. He is currently a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard University and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His debut memoir, Brown Boy, is out now. Please welcome Omer Aziz. Hey, Omer. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, terrific. I love to hear it. Um, I read your book, I mean, at this point, probably six months ago, and, and it's now out in the world. Uh, how are you doing? How are things going for you as your book came out? Things are going well. The response has been good. It mm-hmm. came out last week, last Tuesday. Um, mm-hmm. When people hear that, it would have been out for a couple of weeks. It's been pretty positive. I mean, I'm grateful to be here. It's obviously my first book, and it's kind of tough to gauge like what success is because a book takes time to find its readers and to find yeah. its listeners and to get into the right hands. So I'm just each day I'm really grateful that I'm here for sure and that more people are finding the book. Terrific. And your memoir, Brown Boy, uh, Obviously, it's a memoir. I just said that. But what I always ask writers, what is it about? Like beyond the media publicity, what what do you consider Brown Boy to be about? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's about the discovery of a self, the revelation of a self, and the peeling back of the layers of the world. Like the world is as it is, as you see it. And it's one way and it's taught in schools in one way. But as you move through it, especially as a marginalized person, as a brown person, Mm -hmm you begin to see what the reality of the world is like. And I think it shows that, right? And and vantages, vantage points of different angles of the world, whether that's a working class community, whether that's New Haven, Connecticut, whether that's Harvard and Yale or the UN. So I think it gives people a panoptic, panora- panoramic view of society and the world. It's not purely a memoir on the self. Mm-hmm. It's using the self to reveal the wider world and dis- discover the wider world. Definitely. Um, I'll have you jump right into a reading and then I'll come sure. back and ask some questions. I have a lot to ask you, so uh, yeah. I'll get through it. Um, but what part of Brown Boy will you be reading sure. for us today? So I'm going to be reading from what would be chapter 28, Rivers of Blood. It comes in later on in the mm-hmm. in the book, page 228. And here the reader will find me at Cambridge University. Um, and I'm about to go to an event. About to go to an uh, engagement, an event. Take it away. The following month, I was surprised to see an invitation in my student mailbox. It turned out that the patron of the Cambridge Trusts, my scholarships, was visiting the university and wanted to meet the various scholars. I had grown tired of similar invitations and various formal events that never quite lived up to the hype, but I felt obligated to attend this one. It was raining as I biked up to Fitzwilliam Museum. When I arrived, I walked up to the stone steps of the museum and into the large gallery. I was wearing the only suit I owned. Inside were about a hundred students, a hush in the air. I filled my plate with appetizers as the murmurs grew louder. After thirty minutes of standing idly with a plate in my hands, I saw my patron, His Royal Highness, Prince Charles of Wales. He entered with security through a side door and students quickly lined up to shake his hand. Prince Charles was a few feet from me. He had on a double-breasted suit, hair combed to the side. 
He was holding a giant tea mug the size of a bowl, the tea bug on the saucer with the spoon still in the mug. And he talked and he walked along making chit-chat, gupshup in Urdu with other students. There he was right in front of me, moving in slow motion, the heir to the throne, the future king of Great Britain and the Commonwealth from the house of Mountbatten, Windsor. Weeks earlier, I had learned with some disappointment that the English family who ruled Britain were actually German and that their actual last name was not Windsor, but Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. In fact, the whole First World War had been something of a family affair, with most of the European monarchs related to each other. My hands grew sweaty. What might I say to him? My mind was short-circuited by how improbable all this felt. Me, Charles, Cambridge, me from a ramshackle neighborhood in Canada, now face to face with the descendant of the long-dead Empress of India. I had never met my grandfather, the Dai's husband. When my grandfather was a boy, there would have been no Indians and dog signs outside British establishments. The forefathers of the prince had ruled over India and Africa at the time, and here I was about to introduce myself to the next king of England. I looked around this room full of riches, the consequences of history and violence, our clashing inheritances about to meet. I could pause the tape, rewind it to an earlier time, go back two centuries, to London and Cambridge, and a similar night would be taking place in such an opulent room, the assembled gentlemen toasting to the empire on which the sun never set. But I would have been in India, watching the colonizers arrive. A lot of what Day Beautiful is about is getting to know the, the writer. I, I want people who, who listen to get a sense of who you are, so when your next book is out, they know you yeah. and they, they understand themes. And and you have you you I mean your bio a lawyer a writer a former a foreign policy advisor um, you studied at numerous mm-hmm. um, universities and institutions but I'm curious what was like reading and writing like for you as a child as a teen growing up was it always a part of your life No not really we didn't have too many books in our house my father would only really read newspapers. Mm. My mother read the Quran, but remember, books are kind of expensive to mm-hmm. buy as well, right? Especially when you're a kid, middle class, working class like that. But I would say intellectual culture was always around me. Reading culture, literary culture, like the real culture was around me in terms of appreciation for words, the way the elders would talk about politics in the world. It's like in Urdu, it's very poetic. So it's almost mm-hmm. like jousting, right? It's not just like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, it was there was a real art form to it, a real craft to it. So that's was, um, you know, that was that was really important and um, central to me growing up. Only later did I begin to have an appreciation for books. The Quran was in my house, but mm-hmm. around 16, 17, I became a voracious, devout reader and just wanted books all the time and accumulating collected books. And today, my library at home probably has like. I don't know, maybe like a thousand books and they've been accumulated over like 13, 15 years since I was yeah. 17 years old. And some of them are like dusty, like 99 cent books from, you know, Dickens from the library. And some of them are fresh and brand new. And one of them is mine now. Yeah. So yeah. it's super important. I really fell in love with reading and writing and reading and writing is what allowed me to do well in those colleges that you graciously mentioned, because that's how I was evaluated. If I was evaluated mm-hmm. on multiple choice exams, I probably wouldn't have done that well. But because I had the space to read, explore, think, and then write, that allowed me to to have my imagination grow and to really be passionate about what I was doing. Because for a long time, I wasn't in terms of school. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and I read that you were the first in your family to go to college in the West. Um, yeah. How important was like education in your family, though? Um, it was really, coming... yeah. really, really important. I mean, I say in the West because my mom is a teacher. Yeah. Right. So she had gone to school in Pakistan. My father had studied engineering and mathematics. Mm -hmm. He would have made a great doctor, engineer, lawyer. But as you know, when immigrants come here, they kind of have to start again. Mm -hmm. So the value of education, the principles of education were very near and dear to my parents, especially my father was constantly emphasizing it and my mother embodied it. But it was a big deal for me to then take that baton and actually go to university and go to college. Uh, it was it was a big transformation, you know, for our family. Now, my brothers have gone to college. My my cousins have. Mm -hmm. It's expected of the younger generation, you know, not that college is the only path. But remember, when you're an immigrant, when you come here, you don't have any power. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, there's no like 20 generations of support that you have. There's no like you can just, you know, your father went to Harvard, you can go to Harvard. There's none of that. So you need to build power from scratch. And one of the ways in which America is still a democracy is that its literature is available to everyone. Anyone can get a library card. Yeah. Anyone can go browse books. Anyone can, you know, 99 cents some books are, some ebooks are now. The accessibility has improved in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. this knowledge, this culture, this availability of books is open for all of us. But I think it's really important for those of us who didn't grow up with power to also dedicate ourselves to, to books and to reading. Not just to get power, it, as you know, when you begin to read and interact with the world, fiction or nonfiction, whether a debut author or a seasoned author, mm -hmm. you exercise your mind, your perceptive faculties, your empathy, your ability to learn, your ability to grow, your ability to have relationships. So the more that we do that, especially from a weaker standard stand, starting point, mm -hmm. the more that individuals, immigrants, people of color, young people, women, marginalized groups can then yeah. move forward and grow. Yeah, it, you mentioned becoming a, a a ferocious reader, you know, in your late teens. What were some of the first books you remember like connecting with? I always wanted to read books that were outside of my reading comprehension. It was like yeah. when I started reading, I was like, oh, I have to try reading Charles Dickens. And that mm -hmm. didn't really work out too well, right? Like I tried reading a lot of good books, but it was always a challenge. Um yeah. Which books did I read at the time? It was 17, 18, let's say Dreams from My Father, Barack Obama's memoir. Mm -hmm. that one was good uh although some parts of it i didn't understand at the time um what else by I, I was really getting into politics well a lot of biographies and a lot of histories you know like biographies of the united states yeah um i can't like i can't really think of individual books at the time yeah, it was yeah, more just like it was more like someone had never had a sip of water and then sees a water fountain you know it's sure. just like you're just like taking it all in as much as possible but there were i was definitely drawn to stories with heroes who had overcome things right like mm -hmm. just because i had seen my path and my future um i would say once i went to university and once i fell in love with reading it just never stopped like i was always reading when i was eating when i was walking mm -hmm. honestly i lost respect for people who didn't read at the time i was kind <laughs> of a snob about it even though i wasn't yeah. like you know educated or anything but i was very snobby about it i was like no i told my brothers you have to read it's very important for you you know you have to exercise your imagination and engage with words on the page yeah. um over time i developed obviously my own personal 
kind of influ uh influencer or like influences around me that's like ralph ellison invisible man mm -hmm. uh vs napal of course um thomas mann um just albert camus a number of authors that i return to time and time again and i often like returning to like a great author's first book to see yeah. like how they how they grew and what their first book was like when they had no expectations for sure but yeah i really like and by the way i would study these books mm -hmm. i would like take it apart with a pencil Sometimes a pen, I have to confess, but I did buy them, underlining, <laughs> making notes, you know, just I could open any of my books here right now and you'll just see like deep, deep engagement with the text too, mm -hmm. not just simply like passive reading. And in that way, I could like make that book a part of me. I could really devote myself to it and learn from it and grow from it. Even if I didn't like the book, there was something every book yeah. can teach you, right? So, yeah, definitely. And and as you kind of go through your career, go through your education, when does Brown Boy become a part of your life? It, like, when did you know you were going to start documenting not only your journey, but putting a microscope and a, a, a lens on the world? I always knew I was going to write a book. I thought it was going to be fiction. And mm -hmm. when I was in Yale Law School getting my JD, I was really full-time working on a novel. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that is that when I began showing it to editors, many of them didn't believe uh, some of the scenes, but the scenes I didn't believe were based on reality. So fiction requires a common pool of experience, at least, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The world of 2023 is probably different from the world, is different from the world of 2017. So more marginalized authors can get in front of editors because the market is speaking. But with that said, I think around 2016, when Donald Trump was elected president, I was definitely thinking there's a major information gap, knowledge gap, story gap, a narrative mm -hmm. gap between, say, Muslims, brown people and the majority West. And if Trump could propose things like banning Muslims, that's not. That means that we have a major, not just empathy gap, but narrative gap. And I wanted to help fill that. I wanted to really think about, like, let me put a real story forward with real stuff that happened and make it the best writing that I can and also distill it, like simplify it as much as possible, just get the essence of it so it's really important and put that out into the world so no one yeah. could say this is made up no one could say this is fiction no one could just like a book is meant to be read in the intimacy and privacy of one's mind and it's a very close experience unlike other arts but at the same time it was not escapist you know mm -hmm. you couldn't like escape from the world the realities of the world and then go read it and think well i feel better about myself now so it's something that i think each person who reads, it will enliven and deepen their own relationship to their past and their family and their history and their country, because we all just mm -hmm. share one story at the end of the day. Yeah. The one thing I, I, I've been reading a lot more memoirs like yours more recently, I, I used to not pick them up a lot. And in exactly what you're saying, the empathy, like uh, the expansion of my world and understanding um, through stories like yours, like Joseph Earl Thomas came out with a memoir mm -hmm. called Sync earlier this year. And just seeing how, um, you know, my brothers in this world, like we all are one human race, like, and I know that's like a cheesy thing to say, but it, it's so fascinating that someone um, who grew up like 300 miles from me and our lives, it's like, obviously our lives are so different, but I don't think people think about it a lot. It's just like they say it and they don't connect with the differences. And that's... Yeah. And memoirs are great. Like you think of what... So there's two kinds of memoirs. There's the mm -hmm. one that's just about the self. 
Yeah. And those I think we've oversaturated, like the addiction memoirs, yep. like I think mm -hmm. a lot of those have oversaturated, but the memoirs that are by people who have lived interesting lives from a different perspective and that they can reveal something, those uh, like readers want to read those. Yeah. Right? Like, yes. They want those. And it's powerful because as soon as you open it, you're like in someone else's story. So even if you might be inclined to disagree with them or dislike their politics, it's like the memoir is a great, powerful tool to cross over those barriers that separate mm -hmm, us mm -hmm. um, and i'm hoping that's what happens i mean i wrote this for two reasons to write the book that my younger self needed mm -hmm. at the time and second of all to start important conversations that haven't happened or have taken a long time to happen yeah and at this point um you know the pre-publication process the book is currently out and by the time the podcast comes out it'll be out even longer what have those conversations been like with uh friends family They've been really co-workers. They've been really good. I've been surprised. I mean, I get stories about people who have read it with their wife or partner, with their families, with their friends, by themselves, how it got them to really change their own views, to reflect on their own privilege. I mean, even yeah. including brown people too, right? So I think so far it's been really positive. I do expect there to be some critiques and some, I'm, but I'm game for that. Like I want that. I know there's things in this book that might, people might not agree with hundred percent or it might get them thinking or might get them exploring. And that's really, really important and really good for me. So again, we've been out for one week now and it's going to continue to grow. And it's my first book too. So I have nothing to compare it with. Mm -hmm. And I just think it'll like, it's 300 pages, right? So people need time to engage with it, think about it, reflect on it. Um, and then, and then respond with yeah. whatever they want to respond with. But I, I'm the sort of author that I'm, I love it all. I love this. This is such a blessing for me. This is such a gift. I was not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm not supposed to, you know, be sitting in Cambridge right now talking to you. So each day is a huge blessing for me to be able to do this. It's like, I wake up mm -hmm. in, in, in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, having come from the farm 300 yeah. miles away. So I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about everything. And even when I get caught up in like, you know, the book is out, we should do this and that, um, I, I'm, I'm always just super happy. I plan to be doing this for a while as well. Like I'm a pure writer, by the way. Yeah. I know that this is a podcast for writers, but I want to say to my fellow writers, I'm a pure writer. I don't like the social media stuff. I don't like yeah. this other stuff. I like to sit down on the days and write. So I, yeah. I plan to be doing this, plan to be doing this for a while. I love it. Uh, another thing I want to mention, um, you know, this is like a short rapid fire Q and a, but I want to mention minority views, your podcast that you started recently. I, you know, I've listened to a few episodes. I'm just, I'd love for you to plug it, to talk about sure. it for people to discover. Yeah. Minority views was the podcast I've started at Harvard and it was about having conversations. We, our tagline is conversations in color. We want to have conversations mm -hmm. with people who are prominent in the world or that maybe you'll hear about soon. And then to bring those conversations to younger, diverse audiences, because most of us live far from the gates of the Ivy league and privileged institutions, mm -hmm. but knowledge should be knowledge and information should be free and should be passed out, passed along. So we've had important conversations. I'm, very grateful to say with people like Noam Chomsky, with people like Bob Woodward, mm -hmm. with a woman named Homera Kaderi who escaped the Taliban and is a short story writer and novelist, uh, just incredible people and continuing that continuing to have those conversations. I think I just interviewed President Obama's top economic advisor to talk about like, why is his economy so rigged? That's the other thing is Sometimes in elite conversations, Adam, we'll get into like the weeds of things, like the mm -hmm. nuances and outsiders, people from not from that world just feel like disengaged. Whereas I'm comfortable asking the quote unquote dumb question. Yeah. I believe there are no dumb questions. Like 
I'm willing to ask, well, why it, many people believe this economy is rigged, their wages have stagnated, and yet billionaires keep making money. I'm I'm happy and comfortable asking a top economist or a top policy person that question, like, why is this economy rigged? And they yeah. will not be asked that question ever. They'll be asked about like the numbers and the trends and everything. So it's important for outsiders also, and with this podcast, with this book, with this career that I'm building, is to have that energy of being the outsider and just recognizing there wasn't space here for you before. So you might as well do something with the space that you've made for yourself now and keep looking over your shoulder and remember there's a lot of people just like you behind you waiting for you rooting for you but that are also living their stories yeah. so i as i tell them like you can't go into the rooms and then just like get too comfortable leader you know like you have to think about the stories of others the stories of who have helped you people who have helped you and the stories of those who are coming up as well so minority view serves that it's like a historical project to this podcast um and and we're willing to have conversations with basically anyone on anything and and to really spread knowledge and awareness and love as well I love it. And then uh, one final question, and I usually warn writers before because it, it freezes people up, but uh, what are you reading currently? What's on your radar? What's finished? What's uh, what's no, on the bookshelf? No, it's yeah. not going to, I'm, I'm it's not going to trip. I could spend two hours on that question. So one Perfect. of the first, one of the books I'm rereading is Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, a classic. It relates to my research here where I'm at Harvard, where mm -hmm. I am and my second book actually, which is about like the threat of fascism in America. So between us, I haven't, I don't think I've said this publicly, but I basically want to write the modern version of this. Very but, like, cool. But look at America from the perspective of like this far right, crazy, like the institutional breakdown, not the America of the myth that we all learn about. Mm -hmm. I'm reading uh, Re uh, Reconstruction by Eric Foner, a great historian. I'm reading just a lot about like history, politics right now, the Deep South, mm -hmm. um, fascism, law, uh, American history. Uh, but yeah, those are the books. So like this one, um, also Adolf Reed, uh, The South. Reconstruction by Eric Foner. Um, fiction, I mean, I I have I don't get as much time to read now, but I'm really looking forward this summer to reading more fiction that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of like history, Pulitzer, like meaty books on history right now that I've been yeah. really enjoying. Oh, and finally, a great plug that I also want to give to the House Select Committee that investigated the January 6th attacks. I've been reading the January 6th report. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, it's the text and the writing is good. What it describes is horrific, of course. I want to thank Omar for jumping on the first Taste Reading series to read from and discuss his debut memoir, Brown Boy, which is out now. You can find him on the internet on Instagram at o.maz12 and on Twitter at omaraziz12. You can find Daybeautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at daybeautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Daybeautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs>